Dear Lord God in heaven, I pray, Lord God, uh, I pray that as we read and study your word now that this, this subject, which is again part of this great teaching, this great discourse that our Lord you spoke of among your disciples here, that we would understand again, again, again how important the relationships among believers in the body are, Lord God, and that we would receive this teaching about forgiveness among brethren, Lord God, uh, with, with eagerness, with humility, and with a desire to be doers of your word. Oh, we need that so much, Lord. How the enemy we know would love to sift a body of believers, Lord God, and how he can gain toeholds and footholds and even strongholds through bitterness and through unforgiveness, Lord God, through lack of repentance, how the fellowship can be sliced and diced, Lord God. And, and I pray, Lord God, that you would help us to see the clear teachings of our Lord, knowing that becoming a disciple is about learning whatsoever things you have commanded and following after you. And so I pray that you'd give us ears to hear, minds to understand, hearts to believe, and then strength to obey. Courage, courage and strength to obey. And through it, through it, may you be glorified and pleased. Our reasonable service to walk in your ways by the power of your Spirit. Please help me to speak these things that you've been showing me all week that we all might receive. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Verse 21 of Matthew chapter 18. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. 
So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not have also had compassion on your fellow servant? Just as I had pity on you. And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. The first thing that needs to be pointed out is that this is still all part of this discourse that occupies Matthew chapter 18 in your Bible. And so Jesus is still talking to his church here. And just another reminder that as we read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we are most accustomed to the texts being along the line of revealing to us Jesus as the way of salvation, right? But I would remind you that while that is the chief message, for example, John's gospel says that there's lots of other things that Jesus did that aren't written in this book, meaning the gospel of John. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing you might have life is his name. So John says that he wrote his gospel for the purpose of leading people to salvation. That's why we give Gospel of John's out like gospel tracts. It really was like the first gospel tract in the history of the world, the Gospel of John. But Matthew is more expansive than that. Matthew, in addition to having obviously the salvation message, Matthew also goes into what maybe we would call the discipleship practice, the discipleship message. Matthew's gospel is the gospel that ends with the call to discipleship. Just like John's gospel ends by saying, I wrote this so that you would come to salvation through faith in Jesus. Matthew's gospel ends by saying, Jesus told them, go into all the world and make disciples. Not just go preach the gospel and bring them to conversion or bring them to salvation. And then that's it. But go in and go beyond that and make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, which is the, the gospel mission, the salvation mission, bring people to faith in Christ and baptize them, right? And then beyond that, teach them to observe everything that I have commanded you. That's how a disciple is made. A disciple is made by bringing someone to faith in Christ by preaching the gospel and then teaching them to obey Christ. And so throughout Matthew's gospel, there are various discourses that are not necessarily salvific in their primary intent, but are rather discipleship-oriented. This is one of those discourses, right? This is Jesus, and you know it because, like I pointed out last week, Jesus had just said to Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church, 
And in the middle of this chapter, when he was talking about settling offenses between believers, if it reached the point where a offending, sinning believer would not repent, it was eventually to be told to the church. And if they didn't hear the church, then he would, the person was to be treated as a heathen and a publican. But you have that, you have that entry of the church. So this passage of Scripture is one that is very much for us as disciples of God, disciples of Yahweh, disciples of Jesus, the Son of God. We want to be His followers, faithful followers in our lives. And you've seen it all throughout this chapter, all throughout the whole thing. And it was just so beautiful because it all got triggered off with that who's the greatest and then Jesus gives all that incredible teaching. Now, I also want to point out to you specifically on the subject of forgiveness because that's obviously what's in view here, right? And you've seen the progression through the discourse. The discourse that's in chapter 18 started off with talking about the the humility of a believer, be like the little child. And then we were shown that the, uh, we had to be careful beyond that not uh, uh, to make them stumble, not to despise them, right? And then we went into this passage where he talked about, well, what happens if one of them sins against you? And you see that in all of this, the focus on the subject of forgiveness as we've progressed through humility to how we treat each other to how do we handle offenses. Now we've progressed into this area of forgiveness as Peter asks his very logical question in the beginning of the passage, right? How often shall I forgive my brother? And so as you see that, what should be pointed out is, hear this, this is very important, very important contextual point here. While there is some universal applicability of the principles that are in this passage, Primarily in view is the relationship among us. He's speaking to Christians. I know that because when you get to verse 15, I want to point out to you last week's message. It says, moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault alone with you and him alone. And if he hears you, you've gained your what? Your brother. And then... When Peter asks his question in verse 21, he asks what? Peter came to him and said, Lord, how how often shall I forgive my brother? Right? So we're definitely here. Brother sometimes can be used to speak universally of other people. But I think here the clear context with the use of brother is in the body of Christ because of the discussion about church that has been going on. He's talking about brethren in his own body. He's talking about brethren in the church. How often shall I forgive my brother? And then after Jesus answers the question, and after Jesus teaches the parable to explain it, how does he wrap it all up at the end in verse 35? So my heavenly Father will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother, his trespasses. And that's a very contextual point. The reason I think it's important is because there may be some instances in, and I, I don't have time to get into all this today, 
But there may be some instances when you're dealing with issues of forgiveness and it has to do with maybe someone in the world, someone who's not a believer who offends you. There might be here and there some actions or some courses of action that you would follow that might be a little bit different. What Jesus has, and some other day I'll explain all of that, but I, but I think it's important to note that what Jesus is talking about here is in his body, he doesn't want people making each other stumble. He doesn't want people despising anyone. He wants none of his sheep to be despised in his body. He wants people in his body receiving one another. If people in the body, and I shouldn't even say if because it's when, because we all do this, when a brother offends another brother, I want it dealt with. That's the point for the previous passage. I don't want you to just linger on it. Deal with it. Go to him and tell him his fault between you and him alone and win him back when he repents. And hopefully that deals with almost all of it. But in case if not, then you take the witnesses, and then if not, then you tell it to the church, etc. Right? Jesus wants the relationships among his own children to be right. And in this particular case, Jesus wants the relationships among his children to be a reflection of the relationships between God and his children. As there is that link between forgiveness that we receive from God and forgiveness that we give to our brethren, which you will see. All right, so you understand this is one of those in-the-body passages. This is Jesus talking to his disciples, not preaching to the multitudes. This is a message for you, church. It's a message for us. This is what Jesus wants from us. You want to grow as a disciple? You get, you get what's described in this whole chapter. You get it working in your life. You can see easily how the interests of Satan are served when the teachings of this chapter are not followed. Because then you get this. And when that's in the body, Satan can just sit back in his easy chair and smile. Because we lose our power. We lose our testimony. We anger God, is what this passage says. We actually anger God. So Peter comes to him and asks him this logical question. And let's just go through this passage now. He comes to him and he says, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And I'll just, you know, confess to you that I got a lot of help from the note in the John MacArthur Study Bible on this, which I have in my pulpit here. So I'm just going to read it to you because it's very telling to contextualize what he's saying. Peter thought he was being magnanimous, right? Being like generous, you know? Another, the, the point is that when Peter says seven times, what the note in the study Bible points out is that the rabbis in the synagogues, based on something that the book of Amos said, and we went over this in our own study of the book of Amos, talked about how God would forgive Israel's enemies three times, right? And then that would be it. But 
Uh, and so the rabbis took that and used it to say, you need to forgive your enemy three times, and then that's it. Right? And so Peter thought he was saying, because Peter heard what Jesus said in this teaching about if your brother offends you, tell him your fault between him and you alone, and if he repents, you've, you've won his brother. Right? So Peter is thinking correctly, forgiveness must be a whole lot more important to the Lord than the rabbis make it out to be. And so Peter thinks he's like, Lord, how often should my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Seven times. Where does Peter get the number seven from? I don't know. Some people, some people speculate that because seven has an association with completion or perfection in Old Testament literature like the creation week and such, that maybe, maybe Peter, that, Peter had that on his mind. But the point is that Peter thinks, Peter correctly surmises that forgiveness is much more important to Jesus among the body of believers than the rabbis have made it out to be. And I love this little aspect of this because he goes to him and he says, Lord, right? He addresses him as Lord because we've, Peter has established now that this is the Christ that he's talk, talking to, the Messiah. This is the rabbi of rabbis. And so you have this beautiful relationship between a rabbi and his pupil. And I just, I was talking to someone yesterday about this, how you, you sometimes like kind of forget the, the, the Jewishness, if you will, and the beautiful simplicity of that, that is in all of this, you know? I mean, the blessing of the covenant is a little off the subject, but I want to say it. The blessing of the covenant that God made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, those blessings, that, those covenants were with Israel, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who became Israel, and one of his sons was Judah, and Jesus is a descendant of Judah, right? So you have these covenants. But what was Abraham told all the way in the beginning? He said, in your seed, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. So while the descendants of Abraham and that specific one family that is a descendant of Abraham, the Jewish people have this very highly special and wonderful position before God in that God brought forth Jesus through them into the world, the message of salvation is then comes into the world for them first and through them and then is given to the entire world. Which is why the Apostle Paul said what? I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is God's power unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek or all the other non-Jews. So anyway, that was just a little side point because I love this. You have Rabbi Jesus talking to uh, like a member of his traveling synagogue here, Peter. And he asks this question because, you know, we're looking for wisdom. And what Peter does... As I said, is he applies a correct understanding of the importance of forgiveness, takes his rabbinical teaching of forgive three times and ups it to seven times. Now, Jesus comes back with something that if that was his frame of mind, he was on the right track. But Jesus comes back with something that would have blown him away. And this is something that's for all of us who are in his body. He comes back and says what? 
I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Does Jesus mean you carry a little black book around or you get an app, you get a forgiveness app on your phone, and every time you have to forgive someone, eh, 364, 365 until you get up to, what's seven times 70, 490, right? So, so that's right, 490. So, 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 no, the point is Jesus is taking Peter's seven and blowing it up exponentially because he's trying to show what? Limitless number of times you forgive, you forgive, and you forgive. Now, don't forget the qualification on forgiveness. This is very important. If your brother sins against you, right? Remember what we said last week. Someone might offend you and they don't even realize they have. But even if they do realize they have, you are not told to harbor within yourself unforgiveness and resentment and bitterness towards that brother until they come to you and repent. You are told, go to them and tell them their fault between you and him alone. And then if they repent, it's over and you've won your brother. But if they don't repent, then you bring in the witnesses. And hopefully that will add some strength to the argument and bring them to repentance. And if they repent, it's over. But if that doesn't do it, and they're still stubborn and hard-hearted and refusing to repent, then you take it to the church. And if they don't hear the church, and we'll go through all that again, but if they don't hear the church, then what does it say? It doesn't just say throw him out or anything like that. It says, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Right? And we discussed what heathen and tax collector meant. Basically, you treat them like they're unbelievers and traitors. Right? So in that respect, are we talking about not forgiving them? It's a difficult question, honestly. But I think what we're talking about is See, this is the thought that came to me, and I, I, I was going to have you turn there, but just for time's sake, I won't. Jesus was betrayed, falsely accused, wrongfully condemned to die, physically beaten, humiliated, and mocked as he was dying. And when they nailed him to a cross, what's the first thing that he said? Father, forgive them. Now listen. He prayed for forgiveness for an entire lot of completely unrepentant people. Right? I think it is not good for the soul of a Christian to go through life harboring bitterness towards anybody under any circumstance. But there may be times in your life, if you're going to be be completely obedient to this, that if someone is not repentant over a sin... There needs to be space. You can in your heart. See, in forgiveness, it's almost like there's two acts. There's what's in here. And I know this. Listen, this is not psychobabble. This is, what does Jesus say in verse 35? He says, he talks about forgiving from the heart. You see it? 
from the heart. There is the act of forgiveness that happens in the heart, and then there is the hand-in-hand external act of the restoration of fellowship. This needs to happen in here. Forgiveness, right? Even if what happens out here is either going to take some time or, as it says here, if they're unrepentant, you treat them as a heathen and a tax collector. If you're treating someone as a heathen and a tax collector, are we supposed to hate heathen and tax collectors? Are we? Are we supposed to be ungracious to heathen and tax collectors? We're actually supposed to love them, aren't we? We're told to love our enemies and to pray for them, right? There's one other... So, so I think that it's very important that you realize when Jesus says forgive seven times 70, we're called to forgive and to forgive and to forgive and to forgive. And then he's going to bring a parable here to explain why. And the essence of the parable is you've been forgiven and forgiven and forgiven and forgiven and forgiven and forgiven. And can I tell you something? How many of you think, ready? How many of you think you have deliberately repented of and confessed every sin that you have committed in your life? Every one. Do you have a list somewhere? Is there an app for that? A sin app. Better check the privacy settings on that one, right? Listen. There's, let's face it, there's a lot of things in our lives that we've probably never confessed to the Lord because we do them unthinkingly and we don't even remember them. And so we find ourselves a lot of time just generally confessing sin, right? Lord, like David said, cleanse me even of secret faults, you know, things that were even unknown to him. What does God do? Does God reject us? No, God forgives us. When we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to cleanse us from our sins and to forgive us from all unrighteousness. Listen, we're called to be to our brethren like God is to us. Do you understand? By the way, one more point before I read some Bible verses here about forgiveness. You definitely, listen very carefully to this. If someone sins against you, if someone in the body of Christ offends you, you are told to go to them. If you have not, or if you for some reason choose not to make more of it, like someone has done something to offend you, but you realize maybe they just didn't realize it or they, they didn't know what they were doing or they didn't even notice or you know this is just a tendency of theirs and, and you want to bear with them like the Bible calls us to do, right? And so you decide not to pursue the matter by going to them. You have no right to hold it against them. If you're not going to follow what chapter 18, verses 15, 16, 17 say if you're not going to follow through, if you're not going to go to someone alone who has offended you and pursue reconciliation and then take two or three witnesses with you if they don't repent and then tell it to the church if they don't repent, if you're not going to follow Christ's own plan for reconciliation among brothers, you have no right to treat them as heathen and tax collectors and to hold things against them. Right? 
I mean, Jesus says, here's what you do if somebody sins against you. If you're not going to do that. And listen, there, there, there might be lots of reasons. I feel like there are. There's lots of reasons why I might not pursue something. Like I just said, that's just that person struggling with something that I know that they struggle with. And so you know what? I'm just going to, whatever, I'm going to let it go because I know I probably do lots of things that other people have to let go right back. But what I have no right to do is to hold anything against anyone if I have not obeyed the Lord in what this says about resolving conflicts. I have no right to go and broadcast and spread the matter wide. I have no right to take to social media and cryptically anonymously blast the person. I have no right to hold bitterness against them in my heart. I have no right to talk and talk and talk about people behind their backs. I have no right if I'm not going to follow what Jesus said and go to them. Because the Lord cares that these things are settled. And let me tell you, everything I just said, I have blown it in my life on multiple occasions. And maybe some of you have too. But now here we are, huddled around our Bibles and listening to our Lord and his teaching. Let's make a commitment to get this right. Let's forgive one another. Let's let's stop assuming the worst of one another. Let's start being gracious with maybe some of the, the tendencies about our brothers and sisters that are weak, knowing that we have tendencies that are weak too. Let's start going to each other alone when offenses occur. And let's start getting some forgiveness happening. That's what this is about. Jesus says, not, listen, Peter, you're on the right track seven times, but I don't say seven times. I say seven times 70. Forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive. It's like, it's like one of the most powerful things that God has given us is the capacity in his spirit to be like him and forgive. To be like him and be gracious and forgive. Again, we're not talking here about salvation. It's not a a gospel presentation. It's about life among fellow believers. God wants us to love one another. Forgiveness is one of the ultimate displays of love. And it's powerful. And when the devil gets that little toehold of bitterness, forgiveness stumps him on that toe. Yeah? Forgiveness gives the devil a black eye. Forgiveness chases him away. The Bible says if you resist him, he'll flee from you. When you forgive, you're resisting the devil and he will flee. You know, resist the devil is not some magnificent, grandiose, ostentatious, I rebuke thee, Satan. What does that even mean? Resisting the devil is when the tendency arises to go against what the Lord teaches, you go with what the Lord teaches anyway. In this case, 
when the natural inclination might be to not be forgiven, to not even go and try to resolve the issue, but to just gather some people and say, you're not going to believe what they did this time and start nailing them. When the inclination is to do that, when you instead say, hello, so-and-so, we need to talk. And then you go, and I'm telling you, if you're dealing with real Christians, 99.9% of that stuff, like I said last week, is going to result in forgiveness when you go to them alone. And those things about take two or three witnesses and then tell it to the church, if we're doing everything right as Christians, you never even get there. I know I'm, I'm, I'm stuck in last week's message, but it's all tied up. You see it? It's all tied up. Peter's asking a question that is a result of his understanding of what Jesus just said. It's true. Now, may I say to you a couple of things that the Bible says about forgiveness. Shake your head, yes. Turn to Matthew chapter 6 and verse 12 because I, I, I want you to see this. I know you're going to know all these three passages that we're going to look at really quick, but I want you to look at them with your eyes or hear them with your ears and receive them in your hearts. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 12. Jesus is teaching us to pray. He's teaching us to pray. And when we pray, we're told, forgive us our debts. But that's not the end of it as we forgive our debtors. In other words, part of your time before the Lord when you pray is not only seeking His forgiveness, but seeking His strength and His power to forgive. And when you're praying and asking God to forgive, and I, and I, I can say to you without, I'm not being self-promoting or anything, but this, this has been a practice of my life for a long time. And I know that Though I struggle like we all do with this. I think we all do anyway. I do. Um, When I pray and I confess something and I ask for forgiveness, I always pray and say, Lord, just help me to just forgive and release anyone who's done anything. I, I don't want to hold anyone to anything because I need his forgiveness. And if I don't have his forgiveness, I, I can't even live. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That's part of how we're supposed to pray. This whole forgiving others is part of our prayer life. Do you see that? That's what Jesus is doing there. He's teaching us to pray. Verse 5, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. Verse 6, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door. Verse 7, and when you pray, don't use vain repetitions. Right? Verse 9, in this manner pray. He's teaching about prayer. And he says, pray for forgiveness and also that you might forgive others. And then adds to it, of all the things that he taught in that prayer, the one thing that he elaborated on in verse 14 was, for if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't, neither will your Father forgive you. If you don't forgive them, then your father won't forgive you. Oh, and Jesus is locked and loaded with a doozy of a parable that we're about to get to to make that very, very clear, which we'll come to in a minute. So point number one on forgiveness is that it's, it's attached to your prayer life. 
That's number one. Number two, turn to Ephesians 4.32. Come on now, Ephesians 4.32. The whole passage is about the new man. There's a parallel in Colossians I'm going to look up in a minute. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Right? So part of Ephesians is a, church, is a letter to the church. And in the church, we're told to be kind, tenderhearted, and forgiving to one another, attached even as God in Christ forgave you. Again, all of the things that are described in that passage, the one that gets elaborated on is forgive. You forgive just as God in Christ forgave you. Turn to Colossians chapter 3, parallel, but let's look at it. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 12. Just like in Ephesians, he's talking about the characteristics of the old man versus the new man. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 12, it says, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you. Every time someone talks, whether it's Jesus or Paul, every time somebody talks about forgiveness... It's linked to the fact that God forgave you every time that he says, you forgive each other, you remember that God forgave you. Jesus said it, Paul said it. Every time it comes together like that. Listen, we're simply commanded to forgive. We're simply commanded to forgive. And I would point out, you can go back to Matthew. Go back to Matthew 18. Let me get back there too. Peter came, said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said, I don't say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Right? So Jesus is saying what? Forgive. Brethren, forgive one another, just like God forgave you. Now, in a sense, that's the end of it. Right? He asked a question. He got his answer. But then Jesus, being Jesus, decides to elaborate. And you get this parable. And boy, I am telling you the nuances concerning forgiveness. I, 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 I could spend a month of sermons just talking about this parable. There are so many nuances to it, but I'm, Lord willing, I'm not going to do that for now, but maybe someday. Jesus said to him, I do not say, you, say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. So now we're going to describe forgiveness in terms of the kingdom of heaven. God's kingdom is a kingdom of forgiveness. God's kingdom is a kingdom that forgiveness has a big place in. Yes or no? Obviously. 
If we haven't experienced forgiveness, we're not even part of that kingdom. But now we're about to be told that if you have experienced forgiveness and have been welcomed as a subject into God's kingdom, you need to function as a, sub- as a subject in that kingdom and be forgiving. So, I don't say, t- uh, uh, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, the first thing that you need to do is you need to realize that as you look at the structure of this parable, it's very simple. We're comparing two situations. What's common among those two situations? This servant. This servant is under a master, and this servant has fellow servants. Just like you and I are under the Lord Jesus, but we all have brothers and sisters in the, in the church. right? So this is you, and this is me. right? Now, before the... King, who do you think the king is in the parable? It's the Lord, right? So we have this debt of 10,000 talents. And regardless of trying to interpret that in terms of a modern amount of money, it is an enormous amount of money that the average person and even the way above average person would probably never earn in their lifetime, right? 10,000 talents. It is a fortune that only the elite of the elite can even think about. And the idea is that the king has entrusted this servant with that money, and this servant has done very, very badly. This servant has squandered the whole thing, right? So, accounts are being settled. One who's brought to him owed him 10,000 talents. He's not able to pay. So his master commands what? That he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had so that payment would be made. May I say to you that before God, every human being is accountable with what we have been entrusted with, which is our lives. And if we sin and violate God's commandments with our lives, then then what we deserve is God's retribution. We deserve God's punishment and God's judgment as this man was getting. But do you see what this man does? He falls down before him and says, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. And the really amazing thing about that is that he had no chance of paying the debt. The the point of the parable is that this man owed a debt that he could never repay. And he goes before the master and says, please have patience with me and I'll pay it all back. And the master knows, no, you won't. But what does the master do? He's gracious like God. See, you and I, we can never fix the fact that we're sinners. Just like this guy can never fix the fact that he had squandered all these talents. We can never fix the fact you can take your whole life starting today and devote yourself to being perfectly obedient to every one of God's commands and you won't make it till the sun goes down an unpayable debt. But the master sees the heart and realizes the humility of the heart. And he says what? Well, it doesn't say what he said. It says what he did. He said, the master of that servant was what? Moved with compassion, released him and forgave him the debt. What do you see there? 
There's a link between what two things? Compassion and forgiveness, right? The master had compassion on this one. He knew he couldn't repay him. But he saw his brokenness and his humility, and he was moved with compassion, and so he forgave the debt, as is the case with every person who comes to Christ. We are broken in our sinfulness, knowing we can never repay or make it right in our own strength. We come, we hear the gospel. We hear what Jesus did for us. We hear of God's love and we come in humility. And what does God do? Give us more time to go out and fix our lives? Give us more time to figure out how to repay him? No, he forgives the dead and he sets us free. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. But... Verse 26, uh, 28. But that servant went out and found what? One of his fellow servants. And here's the point. The whole point is to show how the servant who had been forgiven when he could never possibly pay that debt off goes out and finds one of his fellow servants. That's all of us. He goes out and he finds one of his fellow servants. And I want to point out a little, see, there are so many little nuances in this. In the first part of the parable, the king calls to settle accounts, which he has every right to do. In the second part of the parable, the servant goes out and does what to the other servant? Grabs him by the throat. Right? So you see, like, God, with every right and a properly dignified way wanting to settle accounts, but you see this servant who has been forgiven going after the throat of his fellow servant. May I say that that's, that's an important part of all of this. I mean, Jesus, this parable, every word means something. Every word represents something. When you see those differences, they're on purpose. The master settles accounts. The servant goes out and grabs someone by the throat. Give me what you owe. And what does he owe? A couple hundred denarii? Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant, he owed, it says he owed him 100 denarii, which is like nothing. 100 denarii is a debt that maybe after a couple weeks of work, he could come up with and pay him off, right? It is, it is a payable debt. It could be fixed, right? He goes to him, pay me all that you owe. So notice the identical reaction. His fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, have patience with me, and I will pay you all, which is exactly what the guy who owed all the talents said to his master. Have patience with me, and I will pay you. But he wouldn't. That is, he wouldn't have patience. But went and threw him into prison till he should pay all the debt. Right? Now, in some respects, verse 31 is one of the most important verses in this thing. Right? I want you to see this. Right? I mean, you see the point in the first, the bulk of the parable up till now. Our forgiveness needs, I mean, the point is really made, right? I mean, we're real hypocrites when we don't forgive. When we don't forgive, we're real hypocrites because we've been forgiven. I mean, the whole point of comparing thousands of talents with a hundred denarii is to show I have been forgiven way more than anyone else could ever owe me. Ever. I have been forgiven a greater debt that I owe to God than any other fellow servant in his kingdom could ever possibly owe me. And so how can I not forgive the humble, 
repentant fellow servant who comes to me. The humble, repentant one, right? Again, there might be a place where you have to treat a fellow servant like a heathen and a tax collector, right? That's not what the parable is about. The parable is that this guy was humble and repentant and broken before him just like he was before the king, right? Verse 31 tells us something very interesting, as I said. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, stop. What, what, are, what are we, that, the point really has been made. We don't need any more. But Jesus adds this, the fellow servants saw it. What did the fellow servants see? They saw that this person had been forgiven, but they're not forgiving. Note this. When we're not gracious with one another, other Christians notice. And may I say to you, what does it say in this passage of Scripture? It says, when they saw what had been done, what? They were very grieved. Go back to the beginning of the chapter. You make sure you don't make one of these little ones stumble. Right? You see how it all ties together? So what's happening here? It's not just that the guy was being a hypocrite and wouldn't forgive. He was bringing grief and stumbling into the life of all of the other servants. It spread like cancer. And so guess what they did? They went to the Lord. These grieving ones went to the Lord and they're like, man, what gives? I mean, Lord, I mean, and maybe some of them are in tears. Maybe some of them, they're very grief. They're stumbling. They're very disturbed. And they go to the Lord and they say, Man, you forgave all this, and this guy won't even forgive this little bit. Now, what do you think the Lord did? Well, let's just read it. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had, there's compassion again, Just like I was compassionate towards you, should you not have had compassion? If I can be compassionate to you over a lot, why can't you be compassionate to a fellow servant over a little? Lack of compassion will destroy a fellowship. Lack of compassion will create, listen, lack of compassion will create a systemic intolerance of one another's weaknesses. A lack of compassion leads to pride. It's the path to pride and self-justification. When I am not compassionate towards someone else's weaknesses and even their sinful actions, even ways that they offend me, what I find is I fare well by comparison. And so the easy thing to do is to go out, spread the matter, because therein I'm justifying myself. And justifying myself is the definition of pride. And God resists the proud, but gives his grace to the humble. So let's be humble and not do that. Let's be humble and handle offenses right. His master calls him, and I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not have also had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And... His master was what? Angry. 
Who is the master in this parable? So am I right to surmise that when we don't forgive, God gets angry? Shake your head, yes. I am correct. Listen, that's no small thing. And he's not talking, you're not talking about losing your salvation. Don't turn this into some big theological squabble. I can't stand that. Just be, be practical. Listen, we're walking before the Lord. And when we're not gracious and forgiving to one another, when we don't handle confronting offenses properly, quietly, alone, looking to settle it as small as possible, when we don't handle that, it makes God angry and it makes him justifiably angry because he's forgiven us of so much more. And listen, not for nothing, but has God made a public example of any of us with all of our weaknesses and our sins, with maybe some of the things you thought and said and did even this past week, has God broadcast them for everybody else to see? Because he's patient and he's gracious and he's compassionate and he loves you. And when we're not that way towards one another, he is made angry. And in his anger, he delivered, it says he delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. And what was due, because you can't just go to torturers and by being tortured somehow come up with thousands of talents of gold, right? The idea is you can't pay the money back, so you're going to pay me back some other way. And it was through suffering under the hands of torturers. Hey, Jesus, I'm, I'm sorry if that bothered but Jesus pulls no punches, man. Jesus, Jesus is straight up about this. This is as real as it gets. He comes right up and says, delivered him to the torturers until he paid everything that he owed. What does this say about God's heart concerning a lack of forgiveness? Number one, God's aware of it. Right? God is aware when there's a lack of forgiveness. Number two, God holds all of his servants accountable. Number three, God is angered by it. And number four, God will not just stand by. He will act. Our relationship with our king is affected by our relationship with our fellow servants. Yeah. Right? Verse 35 says, so my heavenly Father will also do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Wow. So, what's the bottom line to all this? It's a teaching about forgiveness among brethren. We need to do it. We need to do it again and again and again and again and again. You, you keep forgiving until God stops forgiving you. You keep forgiving until you don't need God to forgive you anymore. How's that? Fair? It is. It's fair. When conflicts among brethren arise, deal with it properly. Go to the offending brother alone and try to settle it. Flip side of the coin, listen, it's easy to think of in terms of we've been offended, but you need to think of this in the other side of the coin too, don't you? You need to think of this as a possible offender. 
And if someone comes to you because they perceive an offense towards them, you make sure you receive them. If everyone functions as a Christian, the person who comes to you because they think you've offended them, they're not coming to attack you if they're really in Christ. They're coming because they love you and they love God and they want to settle things properly. And listen, you keep it small and you keep it local. All those things I said last week. You try to settle it one-on-one in as much as it is possible. And if you do, you have won your brother. Then you follow the rest of it through if that doesn't work. But what's necessary then is forgiveness. What Peter, with his question, tacks on is, how many times do I have to do this? The rabbi said three. You want me to do it seven? Then stop. Do it for the rest of your life. Because that's what you need from God and that's what you get from God. Forgiveness among brethren must reflect the forgiveness that we receive from God. Take your hymnals out and stand up with me, please. Let's sing number 43.